Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the highly informing, overperforming radio show on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is George Akla. I'm alongside Patrick Scott today. We got a great episode planned for you. Um, before we get started, just remember that this is not intended to give financial advice, so don't act on anything you hear. So I got a little little surprised right now. So have you ever had it where you're trying to tell family or friends where Wall Street Weekly can be found, and you tell them, okay, you have to go through a transistor page, and it's really confusing how to find our podcast online. It, it can be, for sure, yeah. So... I'm going to reveal to you that we actually have a Twitter page. I unilaterally made that decision, um, but at Wall Street Pod, we're going to be posting all our episodes there. So if you guys ever can't find it, uh, you are listeners, I should say, at Wall Street Pod on Twitter, we're going to be posting all of that. Um, so exciting stuff there. We're, we're official and we're ready to do this. Um, and then also another thing I found interesting, a couple weeks back, uh, we missed last week because of a, a major power outage. Um, Adani Enterprises, the company that we talked about, which had lost a fa- the faith of a lot of U.S. investors, since our episode aired, Patrick, they've lost an additional 12% in value. In that episode, we outlined some of the corruption and things investors were worried about. And I'm not saying our podcast is you know, well-known on Wall Street, but what do you think the, the percent chance that we contributed to at least some of that uh, Adani Adani downfall there. Well, if you're if you're telling me there's a chance, then <laughs> then I'd like I'm inclined to believe it. Yeah, I would I would think those odds are about zero percent, but a man can believe. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's get right into the episode. Yesterday was Tesla Investor Day, which basically means at the closing bell, Tesla has a meeting, a virtual meeting, where they lay out some of their expectations for the year and file annual reports, that sort of thing. And if you look at Tesla's stock price today as of recording Thursday, March 2nd, Tesla was down 6%. And you might be thinking, okay, what happened? What's new in the EV market? And the interesting thing is that Tesla actually did not release any new, any bad news really for that matter. Um, The expectations have just been so high for that company in the past the fact that at that meeting, that's where the, if they were going to release a new car or some new battery technology or anything like that, investors were expecting some big shakeup and something to hold on to for the future, which Elon Musk unfortunately didn't reveal. Hmm. Well, I mean, I imagine he's a busy man. Just took over Twitter. Well, not just, but he's got a lot of things on his plate, I imagine. Even though with that being said, the fact that the technol- they didn't talk about technology earth-shattering technology, I think kind of shows us how inflated our expectations have been for a company that really revolutionized the electric car, the autopilot um, for those cars, and so many other features that today I think a lot of car companies take for granted and owe to Tesla. In addition, over the last 10 days, the general markets have been down, and that led me and presumably you too, Patrick, to wonder, okay, kind of what triggered this? And perhaps the biggest factor and maybe the, the most overlooked, you probably won't find it necessarily on the front page news, is the Fed Open Market Committee. They have some non-voting members, and a couple of them mentioned the possibility of a 50 basis point rate hike. Now, you might be wondering, okay, why, 
Why does that affect the markets? Why would shouldn't that be factored in? We talked about the efficient market hypothesis. Yeah, I guess I am wondering that, but I also am wondering what a raise of 50 basis points is, I guess. Okay. So when you're talking about percentages, it's really hard to say 0.01% or 0.03%. I think that can be confusing and I'm it takes my brain a little while to process stuff like that. However, if you say two basis points, you can easily think, okay, that's two one hundredths of a percent. Kind of conceptualize that better. So instead of a quarter of a percentage interest rate hike, people mention the possibility, these members mention the possibility of an additional quarter percent. So 0.5% total increase in inflation? Not in inflation, but the interest rate. And you're probably wondering, okay, how does the government increase the interest rate? Like how... How does that work? So they actually have a couple of options and I'm not going to go too far into this. There's it's way more complex than I'm making it than I'm probably making it sound. But what they can do is they can decrease the money supply by selling bonds. And what that means is they can just print bonds and sell them to the average investor and say, "Okay, we're going to pay you with cash in 30 years to pay off these bonds. But in the meantime, you're going to give us cash that's going to take cash out of circulation. The other thing they can do, and they've actually done much more of recently, is banks have accounts. Like, we have accounts with banks. Banks actually have accounts with the Federal Reserve. And Mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve is currently giving 4.65% on the accounts that the banks have with the central bank. I know that my savings account is not getting 4.65%, but this disincentivizes the banks from loaning out money For sure, they're not going to loan it out at any less than 4.65%. But that 4.65% is pretty much riskless as far as most people are concerned. And that, again, decreases the money supply as people aren't loaning out money. Okay. And why this is bad for investors. So as yields increase, it becomes harder for companies, specifically those that employ debt financing, to be profitable. And I think this is pretty intuitive that... If you're taking out a loan at 3%, you just have to get above 3% to be profitable on that. Whereas if you take out a loan at 6 or 7%, which mortgages are well into the 6% right now, it becomes hard to be profitable on that. In addition, if you can get, buy a bond, a safe government bond at 4%, you're going to be much more inclined to take, people call it a riskless investment, a riskless 4%, which pulls money away from the stock market. Okay. So investors want that percentage rate, the interest rate, to be higher or lower in general? It depends what you're investing in. But for us, as we talk in relation to equity investing, we would generally want that money to be or that interest rate to be low because companies are going to be more willing to take on expansion projects and and similar investments. They're going to be more willing to buy a factory if it only costs them one or two percent every year that they have that loan outstanding. Versus if they have to pay 6 or 7% for every year the loan's outstanding for a factory, um, they're going to be much less inclined to take that risk. Okay. Another interesting thing you might have seen in the news today is that the employment market is actually cooling off. And this isn't government data that I'm talking about because government data only comes out once a month, which sometimes makes it hard to see how quickly things are cooling off. Um, but there was a Wall Street Journal article yesterday talking about how data from Indeed and ZipRecruiter have found that job openings are dropping drastically. The point that I wanted to make with this is that it's oftentimes easy to confuse the stock market with accurately measuring the average citizen's well-being. 
So you look at the Dow, the S&P, the NASDAQ, which we'll be talking about later and, and Patrick will be clarifying for us. And it's easy to say, okay, the Dow is up today. You know, I'm the average citizen's going to be better off or the Dow is hitting all time highs mm-hmm. or all time lows. And the average citizen's going to be is the worst off they've been, which that's actually not true. Interestingly enough, we talked about the efficient market hypothesis last week, which basically states that the current price of an asset factors in future in or future projections as well. So if four years down the road, the U.S. economy is expected to go crazy, you know, do really well, that's going to be factored into today's price. To, to do a more concrete example, during the Great Recession, the stock market hit rock bottom. And when I say that, the lowest that it had during the, the 2008 financial crisis on March 4th, 2009. Interestingly enough, March's unemployment was 8.7%, which would only increase from there. And it wouldn't get back down to 8.7% until 32 months later in December of 2011. And this is interesting because unemployment is often used as the measure of well-being in an economy. And oftentimes when the average consumer feels the most destitute or, you know, the, the least amount of confidence is actually when those unemployment numbers are high. You see people out of work. Firms aren't able to hire. When in fact, the stock market can already see that, okay, it might be bad now, but a couple years in the future, things are going to be okay. Like I said, I was mentioning the stock market measures using the Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ. So I think it's time for Patrick to clarify exactly what we mean by those measures. Yeah, let's get into it. So today we're talking about indexes. And so we're going to go over just the big three, and that would be the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, and the NASDAQ. So what is an index? So an index is essentially a statistic that displays how the whole market is performing based on a number of individual companies. George, do I have that right? I would say that's that's a pretty good definition. Um, the major indexes, though, they are favored towards some different things. So the Dow might not be the whole market because it, it underrepresents technology, whereas the NASDAQ overrepresents technology relative to the market. And the S&P 500, you know, I would say some people would claim um, do the best job of encompassing the whole market as far as like equities are involved. So to move on to our next question, I guess who runs or owns like these indices? Is it the stock exchanges or individual financial companies, George? It's individual companies. So for instance, the NASDAQ is owned by the NASDAQ company and S&P 500 is owned by S&P Global where, yeah, they compile this and they do the weightings. But as you'll no doubt mention later, these are calculated different ways and they have their own ways of doing this based on the index. Okay. So can you buy shares of these individual indices? You can purchase companies like you could purchase S&P Global and you could purchase NASDAQ. Um, NASDAQ is publicly traded. But I think the best way to gain exposures, and we'll talk about it in a later episode, is there are ETFs that for a very low fee will match whatever holdings and what percentages these indexes have. Okay. So you can't just like buy a share in the S&P 500? Again, you could buy the companies that comprise it in equal weights, but that'd be a lot of time, effort, and energy. You could buy an ETF that matches it. Yes. Okay. So we'll move on to the Dow Jones specifically now. So the Dow Jones Industrial Average is an index based on 30 of the largest companies in America. Not the 30 largest, but 30 of the largest. Um, so why is it not the 30 largest? Maybe that's not a great question. but Yeah, so I'm actually not 100% sure 
what goes into the decision-making process. I do know that there's five people who make the decision what's in the Dow Jones, what are the 30 companies. But historically, these have been more of the manufacturing industrial companies. I guess the blue chip stocks that push America's economy forward or historically have versus more of the tech heavy companies. So, yeah, it includes companies like Apple, which is uh, currently the biggest American company. Walmart, McDonald's, Home Depot, Boeing, and Intel, um, of which Home Depot just recently took a hit, and it sort of sent the Dow 30 down overall. Home Depot earnings, that was specifically a week and a half ago. But yes, that that triggered a, a very poor trading day on the Dow Jones. So the Dow average was started by Charles Dow in 1884, and it had just 12 companies then. And the Dow's current share price is 33000 and climbing right now. And obviously, these are going to be much um, bigger differences, I suppose, in the share price over one day. So for today, uh, the share price just increased 1%, but that 1% of 33000 was 341 Yeah, and it's, it's important to note, too, when Patrick is saying share price, like we said, we can't buy it. It's not even denominated in dollars. It's denominated in points. You should really be looking more at the percentage change over time than the points per se, or that's probably an easier way when you're talking to people. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense because I've been seeing news articles saying the Dow is down 50 points or whatever, not $50. And the interesting thing, too, is if you're going to go back in time and compare it, you'll see news articles that are freaking out in the 80s or 90s when the Dow is down 200 points, which seems laughable now because that's a fairly common day especially during the volatility we've recently experienced. So I think it's much more important to look at the percent change when we're, when we're trying to compare these things, especially over historical time periods. Okay, so not all of the companies within the Dow are weighted equally. For example, United Health Group provides the highest percentage of any one company within the Dow at uh, 10%. Intel is the lowest at 0.5%. So can the operators of the Dow adjust these percentages sort of whenever they want? And can they also add or remove companies altogether, George? They can add and remove companies. The weird part about how the Dow is weighted is if your share price is higher, you get a higher weighting within the Dow Jones Industrial Average. For instance, United Healthcare is trading at $477 a share, and that's why it's the biggest holding in there. So now we'll move on to the S&P 500. So to give a little background, Porous Publishing was started as an investment information service in 1860 by Henry Varnum Poor. In 1941, the company merged with Standard Statistics to become Standard & Poor's, uh, which is where S&P comes from. So in 1957, it began analyzing 500 stocks, and the S&P 500 was born. So the S&P 500 is today considered by many to be the best evaluator of the U.S. stock market. I got a little trivia for you, Patrick. How many stocks are in the S&P 500? Man, uh, I might need a hint. It's not 500. Is it? It's actually 503. Well, I was being sarcastic when I said I might not need a hint. I was going to say 500. I don't know the rationale behind this, but I guess it is just a, f a fun thing to know. But yeah, it, actually, it's at 503 right now, huh, interesting. Um, which I, it really throws me off and it really aggravates me for some reason. <laughs> but <laughs> So the S&P is a free float capitalization weighted index. So this means that the stocks within the 500 carry different weight based on their market capitalization or market cap. If you remember from last week, market cap is the share price 
times all the shares that a company has. So I guess we can sort of say each share is like a piece of a pie. And so the market cap is all of the pieces of the pie. Yeah, I think that's the simplest way to put it. And obviously, if a company was going to buy out a company, they couldn't just buy all the shares in the company in general because people would see more buyers than sellers and then the price would go up. But yeah, I think in general, it's a pretty fair way to value a company. I think sometimes it can it can get inflated, like we talked about the tech bubble, where you get companies with no revenue that are, are worth a ton of money. So if market cap is the worth of all the pieces of the pie combined, I guess you could just say it's the estimate of a company's worth, but it's not the actual company's worth. When you say estimate, it's kind of weird because it's not like an auditor coming through and saying, okay, this is how much the company's worth. But at the same time, some would argue because so many people are trying to value this company. There's a, a concept called wisdom of the crowd. I'm sure you've heard of where, yeah, individually, everyone might be a little wrong, but when they're all put together, the the people who overestimate its value and underestimate its value pretty much equal out. So it's, it's a pretty fair price. Okay. So now to the NASDAQ. So the NASDAQ stands for the National Association of Securities Dealers Automated Quotation Stock Market. It's, it's a little bit much, but it was founded in 1971 by the NASD, which, uh, which keeps those same words, National Association of Securities Dealers, and it started as the first electronic stock market. So the NASDAQ is actually its own stock market, so it kind of puts it in the same category as the New York Stock Exchange. But it is an index as well. So does this mean that there are two different NASDAQs, George? Or is one a stock exchange and the other is an index? As you brought up, the NASDAQ is an interesting animal because there are stocks that trade on there. There's thousands of stocks that trade on there. And you're probably wondering, okay, when they say the NASDAQ, it's just a compilation of all those stocks. And then they also have other indexes such as the NASDAQ 100, which tracks the biggest and most actively traded on the NASDAQ. So I think it's just a misconception that a lot of people say. And I know from where I work this summer, people say, oh, the market's up by 200 points today. What does that mean, right? Yeah. I I understand you're probably talking about the Dow Jones and you're saying it's up by 200 points. But I think the better way is to look at either percentage change or maybe find an index that more accurately represents the whole market. Some people will say that's the S&P other people argue it's the Russell 1000, which we didn't get into, but that's another another index. But overall, hopefully this episode makes you makes you sound a little more informed when you tell your coworkers, hey, the stock market's up by 2% today. And uh, maybe you can correct them when people say, oh, the Dow is trading at $33,000. You can, you can be the smart guy in the office or wherever you work. And I'll tell them it's points, not dollars. Yep. <laughs> to finish off the episode today... I want to end it on a little more of a positive note and talk to you guys about a phenomena that has just recently come to my attention. As I mentioned, unemployment rates are probably starting to go up, which isn't necessarily unexpected considering that the Fed has been raising interest rates in part to slow down the economy and unemployment is an inevitable part of that, as many would say. And I've mentioned unemployment as a generally bad thing, and I think that isn't going to be argued that unemployment is bad. However, what it does do is it creates a more competitive labor market. And this was integral to the success of the 2010s economy. And you're probably wondering, okay, why did unemployment of 2008, 2009 into well into 2011, why 
could that be a positive for, for the immense growth that we've seen in technology over the past 10 years? And it turns out as a lot of tech employees and very smart people were getting laid off, because there was so much competition for openings, the wages got cheaper. Because of this, startup companies were able to hire top talent for actually quite a low price that they wouldn't have been able to before the recession. Now, once the economy got back on track and unemployment went down, they still were able to retain this top-tier talent. And during that time, they had become profitable so they could adequately compensate their employees. Now, these companies in the future would become some of the big employers in our nation. Among these are Instagram, Pinterest, WhatsApp, some things that we use every day such as Venmo or booking lodgings on Airbnb or ride-sharing apps such as Uber were founded during the recession of 2008. So while it is discouraging to see tech employees getting laid off, the most recent number shows over 250,000 employees getting laid off since the start of 2022. It does make you wonder, especially as we progress to a development and an integration of AI, what will these smart employees at exciting startup companies, what will they be able to accomplish? Whatever happens, make no mistake that the last 14 months are going to fundamentally change the next decade for our country. Well, that's about all the show we got for today. Patrick, do you have anything you want to add? I don't think I do, George. Thank you for listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. This has been Wall Street Weekly with George Ackla and Patrick Scott. Join us next week as we talk about the rise of the retail investor. We'll hope you tune in.